The following is a message from Pastor Ellis Orozco of First Baptist Richardson. For more information, please visit fbcr.org. Thank you. Thank you for worshiping this morning. It's so good to see everyone. Um, again, this week, I was out last week on vacation. Thank you for giving me that time with my family. I got to go to Houston and visit my mom and spend some time with my family. And I so appreciate that. Pastor Gary Smith, I love Pastor Gary, and he is such an amazing preacher. And so glad that he was able to uh, fill in for me. Last week, we talked about the lament and the power of the lament in Scripture. We're preparing our way to uh, Easter. We're, we're in a series of sermons, Roadmap to Resurrection. We talked about uh, how, what, what we talked about how, um, who we are in Jesus Christ and how we're supposed to give him our best. We talked about how our true citizenship is not in this world, but in the next world. And uh, then last week, of course, the lament. This week, we're beginning to unpack what it looks like to experience resurrection life. We've been talking or singing all morning about being children of God. Perhaps you've heard a theme going through of who we are in Jesus Christ. And now we're going to go to God's word to unpack a little bit more about that, who you are in Christ who is now resurrected. What does resurrection life mean to us? So to begin that, we're going to go to, uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 17, and this is what the word of God says. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation, the gospel. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I'm going to make a confession this morning. It's a little embarrassing to me, but um, when I was a child, I didn't want to be Mexican-American. My father is from Monterrey, uh, born there, and my mother is a second-generation Mexican-American. That's that's our heritage. That's our background, Uh, Anyone in our family traces back eventually you get back to Mexico. And so growing up, I was Hispanic, Mexican-American, and I didn't want to be um, Hispanic. The, the elementary school I went to, uh, there were only five other Hispanics in the entire school. One of them was my sister, and the other four were my cousins. <laughs> and I just, I just wanted to be like everyone. All of my friends in my class, I was the only one, only Hispanic in my class, and they all... Their mothers packed their lunch, and it was bologna sandwiches with Wonder Bread and a little bag of chips and a little box of animal crackers. Oh, how I lusted after those animal crackers. <laughs> what did my mother pack? Tacos, burritos, frijoles, arroz, Mexican rice. Come to think of it, all the other kids may have been actually jealous of, of me, right? Uh, bologna sandwich versus tacos. Uh, 
I don't know what I was thinking, but, but I remember going to my mom and asking her to stop to, to fix me a bologna sandwich with Wonder Bread and, and the little bag of chips and the little box of animal crackers. And from that point forward, my mother, every, every day in, in my, my lunch was a bologna sandwich, <laughs> chips, and animal crackers. I don't know what I was thinking. Well, I was a kid, and I just wanted to be, fit in, right? I, I just wanted to be normal. I wanted to be normal. What the Apostle Paul is telling us here in 2 Corinthians, what he's actually trying with all his might to convince the Corinthian Christians, what he's, what he's saying to them, I think what he says to us is, that if you are in Jesus Christ, you're not normal. You're not going to be normal. You're going to be something else. So I want us to look at this passage, and it really his argument about that climax culminates in the passage that we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a lot of theology packed into these five relatively brief verses. I could preach an entire sermon series just on this one paragraph out of 2 Corinthians. So let me just try to break it down for us and then make a few observations and then we'll be done, okay? So the Apostle Paul, first of all, you have to understand, was a master at Greco-Roman rhetoric. Uh, now, you have to understand the Greco-Roman rhetoric in Paul's day was kind of an Olympic sport. They would pack out theaters full of people who would come from far and wide to listen to the greatest rhetoricians of that day. Now, now rhetoric is simply the art and craft of debate or argumentation. It's using language to try and convince people of your side, right? And so people would gather from far and wide to listen to these great debaters, philosophers, debating all kinds of of things. And they use this particular Greco-Roman form of rhetoric, the art of convincing, right? And Paul was a master at it. And in this letter, 2 Corinthians, as in most of his letters, he is using this Greco-Roman form of, of language that convinces. And he's building his case to try and convince the Christians living in Corinth of something. So what is the something that he's trying to convince them of? Well, in order to understand that, we have to go from chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians all the way back to chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians because that's where he begins to build his case. That's where he begins to try and convince. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul gives the thesis. This is what he's trying to convince them of. This is, what, this is the case he's building. He says this, He, God, has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. He has made us ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter or the law kills, but the spirit gives life. That's his, that's his state. That's his thesis. That's the thing he's going to try and convince them of. He's going to spend the rest of the, of most of the rest of the letter, chapters three, four, and five, to try and convince the Corinthian Christians that this, is, that this is true. And he uses this, this Greco-Roman format of rhetoric. Right? We now, I think we call it marketing now. But to convince them that he's right about this, right? And so this is what he's doing. So let me break, let me break down that. Put, the, put it back up there, Bill. The, yeah, thank you. Let me break that verse down into its constituent parts. So what is he saying? First of all, he says, God has made us competent. Before Christ, we were not competent. 
We were as far away from competent as you could get, but now God is the one who makes us competent. The second thing he says is, not only does he make us competent, he makes us competent what? Competent ministers of a new covenant. We are ministers of a new thing that God is doing in Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, he says, that new thing that Jesus is doing, that new covenant that we are now ministers of, is a covenant that brings not death like the old one did, But it's a covenant that brings life through the Spirit. That's his claim. That's what he's going to spend chapters 3, 4, and 5 trying to convince us of. He ends in chapter 5 with the climax. We just read read it earlier. But he begins in chapter 3, and he's trying to convince us of this. This is his claim. And at the center of that claim, foundational to that claim, is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the resurrection event in Paul's argument. That is foundational for everything he else he said. That because Jesus died on the cross and rose again on the third day, conquering death and ushering in life, because of that, we who are incompetent, we who are weak, we who are frail and fractured, we can now live with confidence and with strength and with power. Listen to what he says in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. He says in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians... Um, Verses 14 and 15, I'm sorry, no. Can you put that one up there, chapter 4? Yeah, 7, 8, and 9. He says, but we have this treasure. What's the treasure? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel message. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. What he is describing here is, this is who you are now, you understand? This is who you are. Jars of clay, it was a euphemism for weakness. For, for, for a weak vessel. Most, most jars in that day were made of clay, which was easily broken, easily fractured, easily cracked. Ceramic was around. And that was a much better, but very few people could afford ceramic. We were not jars of ceramic, which are tough and strong. We're jars of clay, fragile, weak, easily broken. But in these jars of clay is this, look at what happens. Even though we are jars of clay, we are hard-pressed but not crushed, perplexed but not despaired, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. In other words, even though we are jars of clay, yet somehow, someway, nothing can kill us, nothing can harm us, nothing can hurt us, nothing can destroy us, and that's not normal. That's not normal for jars of clay. That we're able to withstand all this. We're not, we're not normal. About a, a month and a half ago, when, um, when Russia first invaded the Ukraine, uh, that area, I, I, I told you something, I don't know if you remember. I said, I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't know that there's anything that we can do. Um, but I actually do one thing. I said, if you do nothing else, watch the Ukrainian Christians. Watch. We have a lot to learn from them. Where I said, we're going to have a lot to learn from them. It was a prophetic word because it's true. There's a picture here of a group of, this is a church that's worshiping in a subway. They've taken to the subway because the bombing is happening all above them. 
and everything they've worked for, everything they've built, everything they've struggled for their whole life is being destroyed. You understand? Everything they, they own in this moment is being destroyed above them. And they're in this subway and they're worshiping. Well, watch this, this 25 second video. The sound is not great because of the way it's being recorded, but watch, this is what they're doing in the subway. Watch the video. That's the Ukrainian hymn. I don't know if you noticed, but there were other people walking around, right, coming into the subway and trying to find shelter as well. And they had to be looking at these people going, you guys are weird. You just, this, is, this is not normal. This is not normal. And that's the point. This is who we are. When everyone else in the world is eating bologna sandwiches, we get tacos. We're not normal. Paul wants you to know, stop, stop trying to be normal. This, this is, how does that happen? What is the source of this power? What is the source of this power that causes you to sing and praise and worship God even as the bombs are falling and destroying everything you've ever worked for and you're singing praises to God? What is the power that allows you to do that? And the Apostle Paul says, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. Now we're in chapter four. Remember, he's building his case one brick at a time. Now we're in chapter four. Um, I'm sorry, chapter five. The opening lines of chapter five. For we know... That if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. We know that if everything, the tent we live in is destroyed, it doesn't matter. We know it doesn't matter because we have a house that is being built by God. Amen? An eternal house, an indestructible house. We know that we live in a place where ultimately and eternally speaking, though my body be destroyed, Job says, yet in my flesh I will see God. We know that we have this in Jesus Christ. And this is the power that allows you to sing even as the bombs are falling. Even as the bombs are falling. Um... He's building his case, Paul is, one brick at a time. This is his understanding of the resurrection. Look at verse, chapter 5, verses 14 to 15. He says, for Christ's love, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. It's the resurrection. He died once and all for all so that we can live. So now Paul comes to the climax of his argument. And it's in the passage we read at the beginning of the sermon. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 21. And, and it's, it's, there are just some, a few things that fall out of that that I want to give you now that you have the background. And the first is that what he says is that you are a new kind of creature. You, you are in Christ... 
You are a new kind of species of human beings. This is what he's saying. Look at verse 17, where he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. And that new is you. You are a new creature, a new kind of being. John tells us in the prologue to his gospel that Jesus came as the word. It says, and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh. This is Jesus becoming flesh. And then he goes on to say this in John chapter one. He says, the true light, that's Jesus, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, to become now children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but children born of God. This is why we talk about being born again. You're now born of God. And when that happens, what Paul is saying, his contention is that when that happens, you are now a new kind of creature. In other words, you're not normal. You're, stop trying to be normal. You're not normal. You're something new. And along with that, it's not, he doesn't do that just to do it. Along with that now is that you have a new mission. This new covenant that he's talking about, we call it the New Testament, we call it the gospel. You have this new message and this new mission. What does he say in verses 18 and 19? All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. This is our new mission. And we do it, as I said in an earlier sermon, we do it not because it makes us feel good, not because we, we, we're getting brownie points in heaven, not because, not because we feel sorry for people or because we have pity. Any of those things may be true, but that's not why we do it. We do it because it's who we are now. It's who we are. We cannot not do it. Because it's who we are. We're not normal. We're a new kind of thing. I was reading an article written by one of our Baptist newspapers um, about the work of the church in, in Ukraine during this, this dark time for them. The European Baptist Federation reports that uh, churches across Ukraine continue to provide spiritual material support uh, to war victims um, members of Golgotha Church in Kherson have been caring for children from an orphanage that had been abandoned at the start of the war. Churches continue to be active throughout that region, region and throughout all of Ukraine and even in the surrounding areas. Said, the, the article says, when possible, churches have tried to provide a sense of normalcy to those who are suffering. In the Cherkasy region, more than 1,000 displaced people are housed safely in church buildings every night. In... Um, I can't pronounce the name of the city. I'm going to butcher it. But in Lviv, uh, one local church held a baby shower for three mothers-to-be who had fled the fighting, bringing hope in the midst of suffering. Baptist churches uh, in the neighboring nations have risen to welcome Ukrainian refugees. Romanian churches are working with local authorities to help long-term refugees find work, arrange schooling, integrate into society. 
even nations that are not bordering the Ukraine. Churches are heavily involved. Baptist churches heavily involved in aiding the victims of war. Baptists in Spain, Portugal, the UK, Germany, Austria, Czechia, Bulgaria, Italy, Scotland, and others have given and are work, working to house refugees with church families. The Philadelphia Church in uh, Ternopil, a city in western Ukraine, a, a direction that most of the refugees are headed. They're headed west, right? And this one church, the Philadelphia Church in Ternopil, um, is uh, now welcoming 100 people a day, housing them, feeding them, giving them water and safety in their church building, and helping them to get on and out of the country, right? And they have now helped uh, 7,000 people. The Philadelphia Church in Ternopil, they've literally helped 7,000 people be rescued from the bombing and the war, helping usher them into the, the, the next nation next to it. And um, 7,000 people. Now, here's what's interesting about that. The Philadelphia Church in Turnipal has 40 church members. They have 40 church members. And they, with others that they've organized, have, managed, have saved 7,000 lives. My first, my first thought about that is, that's not normal. That's, that's supernatural. That is not normal. My second thought is, what's our excuse? There are 40 of them in the church. And they have saved 7,000 lives. Stop trying to be normal. We're not normal. We have this new this new kind of DNA in us. We have this new mission, which is a, a, a mission of reconciliation to pe- for people. And he says at the very end, he says in verses 20 and 20, you are also now ambassadors of Jesus Christ. You are ambassadors of Christ. Verses 20 and 21. He says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are now Christ's ambassadors. So what does an ambassador do? What did it do when, what was an ambassador in the time that Paul was writing? And actually not much different than what an ambassador is now. An ambassador, well, they, they represent, right? They represent the sovereignty. They rep- whether that's a king or a, or a nation, they're, they're, they're representatives to a foreign land, representatives of uh, a sovereign. Um, but it's so much more than that, actually. It's, it's, being an ambassador is actually much deeper than that. It was in antiquity, and it is to this very day in many ways. It's not just that the ambassador represents the sovereignty. Um, they have what are, in, in legal terms, are called plenipotentiary powers. Now, what plenipotentiary powers is, it's, it's that they have the full weight and the full authority of the sovereignty that they are representing. So that wherever that ambassador goes, right, whatever they say, whatever decisions they make, it's not just that they who are speaking, they who are doing, they who are making decisions. It, it, it carries with it the full weight of the sovereignty that they are representing. In Paul's day, the full weight of the king. In our day, the full weight of the nation. So when the ambassador of the United States pick a country, 
an ambassador to any country in the world, the, the understanding is not just that they represent the United States. It's that wherever they go, wherever they step in that foreign land, the, the soil they are stepping on is U.S. soil. That's, that's why the embassies, you understand, an embassy, pick a country, any embassy in any country, is understood that the, the building, the, the land that that embassy is on is, U, is U.S. territory. It's a safe place for any U.S. citizen in that world, or it's supposed to be, because it's understood it's a sovereign, it's sovereign soil. And that wherever that ambassador goes, wherever they step, is sovereign soil. So that you understand that the ambassador, it's not just that they represent the king, it's that they are the king wherever they go. It's not just that they represent the United States. It's that they are the United States wherever they go. So you understand that to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ, it's not just that you represent Jesus, you do. But it's deeper than that. It's more than that. It's that wherever you go, whatever you say, this should scare you. Whatever you say, whatever you do, whatever decisions you make, whoever you touch, you are Jesus Christ to those people you're touching, to those people you're speaking to, to those people you're serving. You are Jesus Christ. We are the body of Christ, the hands, the feet, the arms, the legs, the eyes, the mouth of Jesus Christ, wherever you go, you are Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't make you stop and think, I don't know what will. This is what it means to experience resurrection life with Jesus Christ, that you are no longer your own. You are no longer your own. You now belong to Jesus Christ in such a way that wherever you go, you are Jesus Christ. I want us to end today with some sobering thoughts about this. Remember I told you at the beginning um, that as a child, I didn't want to be Mexican-American because it it set me apart. It, It made me different from everyone else. And as a kid... You just want to fit in. I eventually grew out of that. I matured past that. Sometime last year. Um, I'm a work in progress, right? And now I'm, I'm kind of proud to be a Mexican-American. and I, I, I hate bologna sandwiches. There, there, no bologna is allowed in our house ever. And, I, and boy, do I love tacos. We mature, most of us, to a place where we don't care anymore if people think we're not normal. Amen? We just stop caring about that. And we want to be, at some point, who we are, who we are. My name is Eliasar Orozco, and I'm okay with that. Our name, we are Christian, right? It's who you are, it's who I am. We are Christian. If you are in Jesus Christ, 
This is what identifies you. You are Christian. There is now neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. We, those were once identifiers, no more. We are now one in Christ Jesus. We are Christian. But what did you see? Is that there is a price that comes with that. There was a price paid for it. There's a price that comes with it. I shared with you all a couple of weeks ago um, a prayer that was written by John Wesley called the Covenant Prayer. Um, and we, we read it aloud. We said it together, right? We kind of embraced that, that prayer. I want us to embrace it again. I want us to do it again. Um, John Wesley's Covenant Prayer. But as you, as you pray it, okay, I, I had someone come up to me after the, the service that day, someone I love very much, who said, Pastor, I, I, I didn't pray the prayer. I said, okay. It's a free country, right? You don't have to pray the prayer. He said, no, because you, that, that's a dangerous prayer. And he was right. I respect that. He said, I couldn't pray it because I've got to mean it if I'm going to pray it, right? I've got to mean it. And when you read the words of that prayer... It is a dangerous, hard prayer to pray. So I want us to pray it again. And if you, at some point, if you get into the prayer and you say, oh, I can't pray that part, then don't pray that part. I I want you to read the words. I want you to see how serious it is. When you are in resurrection life with Jesus, you're not normal anymore. And this prayer shows it. So let's stand together. We're going to close by, with prayer. Let's stand together. And I'm going to read, and I want you to read out loud, if you dare. If you be so bold as to read it, that I want you to read it with me. John Wesley's covenant prayer. We pray this to God. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you. Praise for you or criticize for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. Amen. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for coming in and changing us from the inside out making us into new kinds of creatures, creatures that no longer have to die, but can live forever. We thank you for that, Father. We, have, we don't have the words to thank you for that. Will you pray your blessings over us and cover us as we prayed this prayer to you? Help us, Father, to go out now and live it. It will be imperfectly. We will fail and fall and fall short. But help us, Father, we ask you with all our heart, help us to live it. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.